Anyways, we're going to be this morning um, turning in our Bibles to, um, let's see, we're going to be in season two, or also known as the New Testament, <laughs> the Gospel of Mark. And uh, you'll see that's in like the last third of your Bible. Uh, you'll have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel accounts. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, starting this morning in a new series. So pretty excited um, for us to be there. So while you guys are turning there, I still hear a couple pages turning. I'll let you guys get there. Mark chapter 1. And verse 1, I'll read it for us. It says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming um, a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. For all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to see him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is greater and mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, this morning as we turn to your word, we desire to hear from you. God, and I pray that our time together this morning would, uh, that you would restore, that you would restore in each of us, Lord, an excitement for your gospel message and build in each of us a, a confidence in the truth, the relevance, and the power of your gospel. Lord, um, this morning we lift up Pastor Gunner and his family as they're visiting his friend in Washington, D.C. Lord, would you, uh, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, comfort that family? Lord, would you use Gunner and his family um, in doing that? And would they be just a light and a witness to your goodness, Lord, in this time? And Lord, we ask that you bless the reading and teaching of your word this morning here at Grace Point. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name and the church all said, amen. Amen. Well, I didn't just choose to give you guys that intro video for no reason at all. Um, I actually found it with my wife, Grace, as we were going through Instagram, I think it was and thought it was really funny, but it actually, in a very humorous way, reveals to us a truth that I think, as a lot of Christians, um, many of you maybe have grown up going to church or have gone to church for a little while, um, have forgotten that not everybody knows the gospel. That not everybody knows the gospel um, or the story of Jesus. In fact, I would point out that we are living in an increasingly biblical, illiterate society right now and culture. And that's sad, Uh, but I don't just speak about the culture at large, but I would also speak about the church. I'm going to bring it in to us, and I know that you guys are uh, going through your Bible reading plan. I hope that's going well, and I hope you go to that Bible trivia night tonight. Um, it's just, it's so good to stir each other on to read the scriptures. Um, I can't say that enough. Why do I say that? Because Lifeway Research, if you haven't heard of Lifeway Research, they're a Christian research organization that does a ton of really great research um, in terms of whether people read the Bible or like why people come to church or don't come to church. Um, so they do all sorts of big old research um, studies, and one of the topics that they found here, one of the studies found that only 45% of those who regularly attend church read the Bible more than once a week. Only 45% of those who regularly attend church read their Bible more than once a week. 40% of churchgoers read the Bible what they call occasionally, which is once or twice a month. 
40% of churchgoers read the Bible once or twice a month. One in five people that go to church don't read the Bible at all. And that breaks my heart that here within the church, we are actually, I think the culture has kind of seeped into the church in that regards, that we have become a biblically illiterate culture. Outside of the church, we have children that are raised with no biblical knowledge at all. They don't know who Noah is. They don't know any of these main big Bible story people, David and Goliath. They think it's just a financial tale or something like that. Like, they don't know. People today are more prone to think that Superman or these people, or these characters that we see in Netflix and stuff are part of Bible stories. And I, I'm not joking. That's true when you ask some kids. And that's sad. And I say that's sad, especially within the church context, because in these studies, it found that 90% of people checked the box in the study that said, I desire to please and honor God with all that I do. Those are the same people who are only, 40% of those are the people that aren't even reading the Bible. How are they going to know if they're following the will of God? And that's what's interesting to me. It's interesting and it's heartbreaking. But that's just what's found in the church. 67% of Americans believe that heaven's a real place right now. 45% believe that there's multiple ways to get there, including one in five professing people to be evangelical Christians. Believe there's multiple ways to get to heaven. And I believe that that is largely due to the fact that we haven't been spending time in the Word of God studying it. So where does that leave us? That leaves us, I think, with we have a social... We have no social pressure anymore in America to consider ourselves Christian. You know, there was a certain time, I think, in, in American history where there was a social, um, almost, knowledge. You, had to, you just had to be a Christian. And to identify as a Christian was a good thing, and now it's not, necessarily. It's going to be increasingly difficult to identify as a Christian in America. And we're, we're wondering why it seems like people, and a lot of research is showing that churches are shrinking. We're wondering why. And I'll tell you why. Um, a lot of this research shows that it's due to what, what they're calling the nuns, people who don't affiliate with any religious affiliation at all, the nuns. Um, these people, not N-U-N-S, uh, just the N-O-N-E-S. So um, these people that don't affiliate with any church denomination or um, religious association at all, um, these people are leaving the church. Why? Because there's no longer any social pressure to become considered a Christian. So these people that were coming to church that just were coming to church because their parents wanted them to or because um, there was a social press, they don't come anymore. So these people are kind of walking away from the church. Um, the late John Stott, um, he's a minister in London or was a minister in London, great author of um, books that I've read and I've grown from, and he's also known as a leader in the worldwide evangelical movement, which that just sounds like a big thing, right? Uh, worldwide evangelical movement. And in 2005, he was actually ranked as one of the top 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine. John Stott. If you haven't heard of him, look him up. He has a quote that says this. It says, Nothing hinders evangelism more today than the widespread loss of confidence in the truth, the relevance, and the power of the gospel. I'll read that again. Nothing hinders evangelism today more than the widespread loss of confidence in the truth, relevance, and power of the gospel. He held this idea that it's vital for Christians to distinguish between Scripture and culture. It's vital for you guys to distinguish between Scripture and culture. And I say that today because we are living in an ever-changing culture. And if we don't have confidence in the gospel, we have nothing compelling us to share it, right? If we have lost our confidence in the gospel as a church, we have nothing inside us compelling us to share it. 
I prayed this morning that God would renew in us the confidence in its truth, its power, and its relevance. And I think that's what God's going to do through this study in the book of Mark as we dive in. Another um, pastor and author, um, David Platt, if you've heard of him, he's known as being one of the youngest megachurch pastors, and he's also the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, the International Missions Board, if you've heard of that. Um, He says this, and he kind of follows up what John Stott says. He says, we desperately need to explore how much of our understanding of the gospel is American and how much is biblical. That's challenging. We need to explore how much of our understanding of the gospel is American and how much is biblical. And this is coming from a guy who's traveled around the whole world doing missions as well. How much of the gospel is American and how much is biblical? He says that it will be increasingly countercultural for us Christians to work diligently, live simply, give sacrificially, help constructively, and invest eternally. I remember listening to uh, David Platt as he spoke at Urbana, one of the uh, missions conferences. It was like 17,000 kids show up to St. Louis, Missouri in like the dead of winter right right after Christmas. Um, And it's just 17,000 college students from around the world that show up to this place and they hear from God. And it's just, it's an amazing conference that I was blessed to go to. I think it was back in 2012 and 2015 when I went. Um, They do it once every three years. And he was one of the speakers there. And I remember him saying that quote. And it challenged me to really look at the gospel from a different perspective. It challenged me as a young man to think, okay, Lord, how much of my understanding of the gospel is rooted in my American culture and how much of it is actually biblical? So we're going to look at that a little bit today because our culture is rapidly changing. And what I find most interesting now is that people, especially cultural study, or culture study people that, that have some influence there, are actually calling the time we're living in now, this is interesting, called the age of outrage. That we are living right now in America in what they call an age of outrage. And we laugh at it. But I think we can all understand, we all believe that we're living in an outrage culture. It's, it's, it's everywhere around us. And what is it about social media that makes everyone think they can say whatever they want to say, whenever they want to say it, however they want to say it, and not have any consequences to that? That's what's so interesting, um, that people are constantly attacking each other online, saying things they wouldn't dare say if they were standing in front of you. My father-in-law, he, he's kind of funny. He calls those kind of people keyboard tigers. They get, some, they get emboldened behind the keyboard and their computer screen sitting in their living room more so than they would if they were just sitting face-to-face talking to you and having a constructive conversation. And yet this is the culture we're living in. And, and sadly, many of you have probably lost friends or upset family members, gotten in trouble at work for something you posted on social media. In fact, the, uh, Chicago, there's a bunch of stuff about this outreach culture online, uh, especially different uh, news sources and all sorts of stuff have articles on it. The Chicago Tribune, I found uh, an interesting article there uh, where it says, for a frightening number of people, the art of being offended by everything, or even better, loudly publicly complaining about being offended by everything, is pursued with alarming dedication. I'll read that again. For a frightening number of people, the art of being offended by everything, or even better, loudly and publicly complaining about being offended by everything, is pursued with alarming dedication. That's interesting. That's really interesting. In fact, I know uh, Psychology Today actually talked about this out- that outrage. It talked about the idea that outrage is actually... Um, that when, when people are outraged, they, they get so ingrained in their own ideas, right? They get this, that it actually drives their narcissism in them. 
meaning like their self-love, that they get more rooted in their own belief that they're the only one that's right, they're the only one that has an opinion that matters, and they just get more and more rooted in that belief. The outrage is contagious. Would you agree with that? Outrage is contagious. And you'll see that um, quite a bit. And I, and I bring up this idea and this, this to you guys, because as the church, we need to understand this is the culture we're living in, this outrage culture where we can say something and people get offended by anything and they want to be outraged by it and they want other people to be outraged by it and they will post stuff on your social media account and they will challenge whatever it is. That's what's happening right now. That's where we live. But is this anything new? Is this anything new? No. I, I, I would actually challenge you guys when we read through, and I, and I encourage you guys read ahead. We're going to be in the book of Mark for a long time. It's going to be great because we're going to learn a lot from this gospel of Mark. Read ahead, and you'll find out that two key characters, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, were not afraid to offend people. So as we wade into the book uh, and the gospel of Mark this morning, we're going to find out that um, Jesus Christ and John the Baptist did not pull any punches when they, when they gave the truth. And that's what's interesting, is that they, they didn't care, and, and it outraged a few people, actually quite a few people. They got both of them killed, John the Baptist and Jesus. And are we willing to stand up for what we believe in in our culture? Are we willing to look at this gospel and to say, okay, Lord, I want, a, I want a biblical understanding of your gospel. Lord, I want you to reignite in me a passion. And more than that, the relevance and the truth and the power of your gospel. I ask, I ask you guys that you'd be praying about that as we go through this study. So one of the best ways for us to understand how much of our understanding of the gospel is American and how much is biblical is to walk in the footsteps of Christ himself, to turn to the gospel records as they've been given to us and immerse ourselves in the person, the work, um, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to help us in that effort, we're going to be looking at the gospel of Mark. Mark, um, as, as an overview, Mark is a gospel that is the shortest gospel of the four. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the shortest being only 16 chapters. It's the first, and I would add that it is the most missionary-oriented gospel of the four gospels. It is by far the most missionary-oriented of the four gospels. Mark leaves out a significant amount of material that, Ma- or that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include, but in the gospel of Mark, we find more miracles of Jesus recorded than in, in any other gospel interesting. In this gospel, um, we find that Mark portrays Jesus being on the move. He is a missionary God. He's on the move, that he's always going to something. You'll actually find this, and as your homework, you can look for this. I believe that the word immediately is found about 40 times in the 16 chapters of Mark. Immediately. So as you guys are doing your Bible trivia, I, get, I challenge you guys to find that spot, um, those, different, those 40 different immediately's, because every single time it's significant. There's, there's a reason that Mark writes the gospel this way. He writes the gospel this way because his clear aim in writing this book is to persuade and convince all of those who read it to believe in Jesus Christ. There's no other reason for writing this book. It's to persuade people to believe in Jesus Christ. So if you don't know Jesus as you're here this morning, or you don't feel like you know him that well yet. 
I would hold, my belief is that through this study, through the next weeks and months in the Gospel of Mark, you're going to get to know Jesus on a very personal level. Mark doesn't write this story in the account of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ, to do anything other than convince people because he himself was changed by the life of Christ. It was out of his own personal transformation because of Christ that he writes this story so other people can be changed. So that way when you go home or you go to the coffee shop this week or you're hanging out around the horse corrals or around the animals and somebody asks you, well, so what are you studying at church? You say, I'm studying the book of Mark. And they say, okay, well, that's, what's the point of that? What are you going to say? It makes me feel good? No, it, this book changed my life. This story changed my life. When I tell people that, I say I, I actually believe that too. And you can see that in my life. Mark's breaking new ground when he writes the book of Mark as um, a lot of the early church fathers recognize him as being the first writer of the gospel. So before Mark's gospel account of Jesus Christ, there was no such thing as a gospel. Imagine that. So I'll, we'll rewind the clock here real quick. What is, what is the gospel? Mark, Mark might have been asked, like, so what are you writing, Mark? And he would have said, I'm writing a gospel. And he would have been like, well, what's that? Well, the gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, if I said that right, meaning the gospel or good news. It's the same Greek word that we derive our word evangelical from. So that way you can see why, that's, that's why Mark is writing this book. I'm writing the good news of Jesus Christ in order to encourage believers in Rome who were living under the most evil Roman Empire, Caesar Nero. Nero was known as taking Christians, uh, or making Christians the scapegoat for the fires of Rome, if you go back and study church history. In that era, I would say it was quite a bit of an outrage culture. He made people outraged that these Christians supposedly had started these fires. He needed a scapegoat. He was known for doing a lot of other incredibly gruesome things to Christians, um, not only just beheadings and crucifixions, but burning alive, like all sorts of just absolutely crazy things. And we think that we live in a, in a terrible time today. We think that we have hard persecution today. No, like the outrage culture is nothing new. It's nothing new. People need to be transformed by the renewing of their hearts via the gospel message. What makes Jesus unique, um, if Mark was writing to these Christians in Rome, in particular, who, who he's writing to, um, what makes Jesus unique, he would say, is what Mark 10.45, which to Mark 10.45, if you go there and you highlight that verse, that is basically the theme verse for all of Mark, if you will. Mark 10.45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I'll read that again. Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So you'll see, as Mark writes this gospel, this euangelion, this good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, he's going to be pointing out the acts of Jesus. It's mostly the actions of Jesus are, I'd say, more focused on than the teachings of Jesus. Whereas the other gospels really focus in on the teachings and the sermons of Jesus, Mark really focuses in on the action of Jesus what he did with certain people, how he healed people, how he cared about people, how he served people. You'll see that throughout the book of Mark. If we re rewind this, this clock, you'll see that Mark, um, I believe he actually wrote himself into this gospel. This gospel was written, um, they think around mid-60s AD, 
um, to early 70s AD. Um, if it was written between mid-60s AD, that would have been right around the time um, either before Peter was executed or um, right after Peter was executed. If it was written in the 70s AD, um, it would have been right around the time that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Rome, Romans. So either way, that's not an easy time to be alive, right? For the people there, that would have shook the ground. The Apostle Peter getting executed, and then just a couple years later, the temple, which took about 70 years to build, it says, and it was just in- incredible, was destroyed. That would have been earth-shattering in this area. And this is why he's saying this isn't an easy time to live, but the big picture of this book for the people, the Roman, the Roman Christians that he's writing to, is that Jesus and the kingdom of God that he announces is advancing Saying, yeah, the temple might have been destroyed. Yeah, the apostle Peter might be dead. He might have been beheaded. But the kingdom of God is advancing against both world powers and supernatural authorities. An important message for the people at this time. So church history kind of shares a little bit that Jesus was killed probably right around, it was 30 years before the book Mark was written. So if Jesus was crucified... He died and he rose again about 30 years before Mark was written. What's interesting to that, that end is that 30 years isn't, isn't a, a very long time if you think about it. If we read, and we're, as we're going to read the story of Jesus in the book of Mark, Jesus had a huge impact in this whole entire region. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were affected by Jesus Christ. And 30 years later, this gospel was written. What's interesting about that, I find, is that if anything had been embellished or made up in this gospel, there would have been people alive that followed the life and teachings and ministry of Jesus and knew people that were affected by the ministry of Jesus that could challenge it. So when people say, like, oh, that could just be all made up stories, I, I push back and I say, how? Let's just say that there was a history book written today from an event that happened 30 years ago. A lot of you guys could look back and say, no, that's not accurate information. I was there. In the Bible, they could say, oh yeah, I heard you know, this man you wrote about Levi. He was a tax collector and a sinner and Jesus went into his great house and had a big party with him and then he changed his ways. But, but Levi, you know, he's just a scumbag. When he died, he was just as much of a scumbag as he was when he was a tax collector. No, that wasn't the case. Nobody pushed back on these people. Nobody said, oh yeah, that lame man who Jesus healed, um, being lame, born lame from birth, was still lame. Nobody did that. Nobody looked at the Samaritan woman that was written about in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus met at the well of Cyprus and said, no, her life wasn't changed. Why? Because they could go back to the whole community that she ran back to and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with, and they were all believers in Jesus Christ, and they could go to that town and say, hey, how did you guys come to find out about Jesus Christ? How, do you, how did you believe in him? How do you know about him? Well, Jesus was talking to this woman who we knew had five husbands and wasn't living a very reputable lifestyle, and she came down yelling and screaming at all of us that we needed to hear what he had to say. So we all went up to the well, and Jesus taught us for days, and we believed in him. So because the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, was only written 30 years after the death of Jesus, many people were still alive. In fact, I believe that the author, I mean, and what's interesting about the author is uh, one of my points is, would be, who wrote Mark? Obviously, it says the, the gospel according to Mark in your Bible, right? But in the first 
sentence of Mark, the first verse of Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the purpose of the book of Mark is written. He jumps right into the purpose statement of the book of Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And other translations might even add Savior after that. Whereas other books would, would indicate, I, Paul wrote this in my own handwriting. So how do we get Mark? Well, a lot of the early church fathers attest to this book as being written by Mark, a man named John Mark, actually. And John Mark um, would have been a young man at the time that Jesus' ministry was um, at, in full swing, if you will. And John Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. Although, if you read the account of the gospel message, Jesus had not only 12 disciples following him around, but crowds and crowds of people following him everywhere he went. And I would challenge you guys to find where Mark, John Mark wrote himself into his own gospel. And I'm going to say uh, Mark 14 is a good place to start while you guys are there. Um, and then there's also another spot too. Uh, I believe that Mark wrote himself in, um, actually painted himself in a, a naked picture of himself <laughs> as he ran away when Jesus was being taken to be crucified. But I also would believe um, personally, and I got to study this whole book um, of Mark line by line, verse by verse, um, over like three whole weeks straight um, while I was in college and even taught some of it. And it was really interesting to me. I believe that Mark's written in in another place too, that he might be a man that he calls the rich young ruler. Mark's mom was named Mary, and Mary had this big house that the disciples were known to uh, meet at. And they might have even perhaps had the last supper at this house. Not only that, but this house, Mary's house, um, John Mark's mom's house, perhaps was also the place where all the disciples met after Jesus was crucified, where they were all meeting upstairs. Mary, um, John Mark's mom, was an ad- avid follower of Jesus. She supported his ministry. She's one of the big supporters of Jesus, one of the gals that is just a huge supporter. So anytime that Women are bashed in the New Testament. It's like, no, are you kidding me? Women were some of the biggest supporters of Jesus' ministry. They were the ones that let him do all, of, all have all the freedom that he needed. They supported him financially. Some of his biggest financial, financial givers, because you do realize Jesus never owned a home. He didn't have a car. He couldn't live out of that. No, he traveled on foot with his disciples and stayed wherever they were at. And in this case, John Mark's mom, Mary, was one of those women that opened up her doors to Jesus. And because of that, I'd say John Mark knew Jesus. He had probably spoken with Jesus, especially if you attribute him writing himself into as the rich young ruler who Jesus talked to, and he couldn't give up all that he had. John Mark had a cousin that you guys might be familiar with named Barnabas, and you can find about their adventures if you flip over to the book of Acts, right after the gospel accounts, and you'll realize that John, Mark, and Barnabas, they set out and they did a missionary journey with one of Barnabas' great friends, Paul. And they went out all around until there was a little bit of a, a misunderstanding, if you will, some friction between John, Mark, and Paul. So Barnabas and John, Mark split up and Paul took a man named Silas and they went a different direction ministry-wise. But all that comes around full circle when the Apostle Paul writes, you can find this in, in First and Second Timothy where he says, bring Mark to me, who's in from... Paul's in prison. He says, bring John Mark to me. He's beneficial to me in the ministry. John Mark wrote 
the Testament of Jesus. How do, how do we get all this? So you might ask that. That's a good question. Um, John Mark was also good friends with the Apostle Peter. And many believe, and it would be hard to argue against this um, based on what we have, um, that John Mark wrote the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry through the eyes of the first-hand experience of the Apostle Peter. Which would make it interesting. It's like, it, obviously this wasn't, this wasn't embellished. If, if I was writing my own story of me, my first-hand account of somebody else, I would probably make myself look a little better than I am, wouldn't you? And yet we see the disciples talking, and John Mark um, is, is writing down the account of Peter, and you think that you know, if this was embellished in any way, shape, or form, this would look completely different, and yet that hasn't been challenged. You think Peter, when he's re- recounting maybe being up on the mountain and feeding five, Jesus feeding 5,000 people with a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish, and then Jesus commanding them, hey, go down into the boats and cross the Sea of Galilee, and they go, and it's this crazy storm, and they're talking about how scared they are, they think they're going to die, and then Jesus comes walking on the wall, like, you can't make that up. You make yourself look dumb. Not only that, but these men all write themselves in in a very humble way. They're just ordinary people that make mistakes. They're ordinary people that didn't understand the message of Christ until the very end almost. That's what's interesting. In this account, Jesus is going to be revealed to us by the Apostle Peter as the Messiah, the suffering servant, the Son of God, the risen Christ, and the returning King. Some might ask, um, well, isn't this book and these Gospels just legend? And that could be a pushback you'll get, especially if you are sitting at the coffee shop talking about the Bible. Well, isn't that all just made up legend? No, it doesn't read like legend. Turn over with me to the book of Luke, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 3 for just a minute. It's just to the right, if you flip a couple pages, Luke chapter 3. It's the next gospel over, and Luke's account is a little bit different at the beginning. Here, Luke chapter 3, and we're going to be in verse 1. It says this, John the Baptist prepares the way. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being the governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eteria and Trachionis, if I said that right, and Licinius, tetrarch of Albaline, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's a lot of details. You don't write these kind of historical facts into a document when they could easily be challenged by the people that lived at that time. If this was all made up legend, you could not add all of these nice little details in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, you do realize that those characters mentioned are not contested by any historians, period. It's not contested at all. We can't say, oh, those guys never existed. No, we, we have historical evidence that they existed. Not only that, but we have historical evidence in, uh, of the Gospels. If you guys haven't heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls and other uh, manuscripts that have been found, original manuscripts even, um, that have been found According to these Gospels, in fact, a manuscript that was found uh, relatively recently was a portion of the book of Mark that we're going to be studying, and that dated back to um, approximately A.D. 130. It is the oldest manuscript to be held in existence that actually supports 
This document that we hold in our hands has not changed in the years. This is still the same word of God that they had back then. It's interesting to me. So I don't just give you those, those facts to, to get us puffed up and think, yeah, like that's great. No, my confidence in the scripture is because I believe in Jesus Christ. And he's transformed my life. And as a believer, as somebody who believes in this, the Holy Spirit makes clear to me and clear to you that this is true. Amen? Amen. And that it's actually a sin. to un- if, you're un- if you're unbelieving, it's actually sinful. Because sin clogs our vision and clogs our ability to understand this is the truth. As sad as that is. And that's why we need a renewing in our church, a renewing in our hearts for the power of the gospel. We need excitement about this gospel. This is good news. We need to go out and proclaim it. You know what happened right after Jesus' death and, and resurrection and all the disciples ran and hid? They wouldn't have written that in there if they were trying to embellish it. They were hiding. But you know, Peter, after the Holy Spirit's given, he stands up and he teaches to 3,000 people in the middle of this culture where this is right after Jesus is killed and, and everyone's afraid because what if they come after me next? Jesus was just crucified. What if they come after me next? We're going to hide. And then the Holy Spirit is poured out and there's like these flames of fire on people's heads and they're speaking in different languages. And then Peter starts to preach and starts to tell this great story of, what, of who Jesus is. And thousands come to the saving knowledge of Christ right there. 3,000, the Bible talks about. And I pray that it would be something like that in our lives. That as we study this book, as we go through this book of Mark, that God would ignite some kind of fire inside of us for his good news. That he came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. Would we walk in those footsteps? For over 2,000 years, these scriptures have stood the test of time. It's always been a bestseller. (laughs) They've always been a bestseller. But that's not the problem. The problem is that although this has been a bestseller and you can find a Bible in almost the home of every American home, every American household, almost, people aren't picking it up and reading it. So I want to encourage you guys and I want to give you guys the exhortation this morning that we need to be students of the Word of God. And I would challenge you guys, take somebody through it with you. Read a chapter a day of these first-hand accounts of the four different Gospels. Mark, the book Mark, is actually the most translated book in the entire world, if you guys didn't know that. It's interesting. It's the shortest of the Gospels, but it's the most translated book in the entire world, partially because it was written to people who were unfamiliar with Judaism in the first century. It was written to Romans. The whole point of this book was to get people to believe in Jesus Christ. And my heart as a pastor for you guys is that if you don't know Jesus Christ, that you would come to know him through this text. That you would come to know his heart, that he came not to be served, but to serve other people and to give his life a ransom for many. And that distinguished him uniquely against every other Roman God that people worshipped in Rome in the first century. They worshipped many gods. Even Caesar was worshipped as a god at certain times. He's saying, no, Jesus Christ. First verse in Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who is Jesus? The Son of God. And that 
That's why I'm excited for you guys to be, and for us to be starting this, this gospel in Mark. I'll leave us with, with this as, as we close here. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. No importance. If true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. C.S. Lewis is a smart guy. A lot of us have read his books. Uh, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So I challenge you guys, where do we stand on this? Is it infinitely important to you? Is this gospel infinitely important to you? And I urge you to consider this week the importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we study it in depth over the next weeks. Do you guys all pray? Father God, as we come before you again, Lord, we thank you so much for the time we have in the gospel of Mark. Lord, thank you for your transforming work in John Mark, Lord, the author. And Lord, that you... um, Lord, we believe in the dual authorship of this scripture, Lord, that you wrote this scripture through the hands of John Mark, Lord, that it was a divinely inspired text, and that all scripture is God-breathed in and profitable for correction, for rebuke, for, for instruction in righteousness, Lord, as your scripture says. So, Father, would you remind us of the importance, the truth, the relevance, and the power of the gospel this week? And I ask all these things in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen.